Um, and I'd like us to pray together as you do that. So bow with me, please. Father, be kind to us now. Help us. Help us lay aside lesser things and give our, our hearts and minds fully to this event that changed the world, this day that changed the world, that's built, intended, and gifted to us to change us. May our love and esteem and worship and faith in our Savior, your Son, Jesus, increase all the more because of this time in your word. <clears throat> this we pray in his name. Amen. The teaching on Good Friday, as you can imagine, is extraordinarily rich, and it, it fills the, the last few chapters of each of the four Gospels, and we'll be drawing from all of those today, but our primary text will be in Matthew, the back end of chapter 26, and then chapter 27, and what we'll do is we will, along that way of suffering from Gethsemane to Golgotha, we will stop and look at six different scenes that show us the sufferings of Christ along the way, and the first of those scenes is the failure of his disciples. If you remember, first there was Judas, uh, back where Maundy Thursday blends in with Good Friday that, that late night, um, while they were still in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, starting in verse 47, we read that while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to kiss Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Um, Professor Dale Bruner writes that the language used here suggests that Judas did not just kiss Jesus, but he kissed him warmly as if he meant it. He says, human nature is surely sick, but the sickest form of human nature is fake discipleship. And Judas here twists a greeting of friendship into a death sign. This garden scene that we're looking at closes then with these words of sorrow and abandonment in verse 56. It just says, then all the disciples left him and fled. And the rest of the journey, Jesus will take alone. But there's still a little glimmer of hope in the accounts for faithful, faithfulness <clears throat> to be found in the part of the disciples. Peter and John covertly follow Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest that night where he's about to be tried. Um, once there, though, John simply disappears from the story, and Peter's failure is infamous. We read about it in Matthew 26 and verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and he, she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And now the disciples have all failed Jesus. And the rest of this path, Jesus will travel alone, this way of sorrows. Um, And the first of those sorrows was this. It was the failure of his friends, of his disciples. You can almost hear the echo of the words of the prophet Isaiah as he wrote of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus is alone, and that's how he will face throughout the night an unfolding series of trials and hearings that go on surrounding his fate. Three of those trials involve the religious leaders who prosecute Jesus with a shocking determination and almost hatred. The first of those three religious trials happens before a man named Annas. Annas is the former high priest who was deposed by Rome and another put in his place. Some feel that he is still the the real high priest. And that he is actually the power behind the high priest that Rome installed. That man's name is Caiaphas. And after Annas, the former high priest, examines Jesus, he is then taken to Caiaphas, the sitting high priest who's been put in place by Rome. That's where the second trial of the night occurs. Caiaphas and these other leaders are gathered there. It's likely the middle of the night at this point. Meanwhile, the council of religious leaders, they've assembled and are trying desperately to get a charge to stick against Jesus. They even entertain false, patently false testimony. And yet Jesus chooses to be silent. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't clarify. He is silent. And again, you can hear Isaiah's prophecies ringing true. Isaiah 53, again, he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so in Matthew, we continue, we read, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, the last time in Matthew that someone asked Jesus to declare if he was the Son of God was in Matthew chapter 4, and it was the devil. You remember The tempter came to Jesus and said to him, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. And a couple verses later, it says, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And so here we find 
In the middle of this night on Good Friday, we find the high priest of God, God's great representative before the people, he's now asking the devil's question. And it's been pointed out that Jesus' seemingly indirect profession, his response, you have said so, occurs in Matthew on just three occasions. It occurs to Judas at the Last Supper, here with the high priest's interrogation, and finally at Pilate's interrogation. The high priest is not in good company here. And so it's not shocking when the high priest issues his verdict. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? It's really ironic here. They accuse Jesus, of blasphemy, of speaking sacrilege against God. Jesus, whom John first introduces to us in his gospel as the very word of God, is now being accused of speaking blasphemous words. And they spit on his face and strike him and slap and mock him, and Jesus endures it all. And then the third religious trial convenes. It says that morning, when morning came in chapter 27, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. The religious leaders will now seek Jesus' death at the hand of Rome. And so Jesus endures silently as Isaiah predicted and as Jesus predicted, as we'll see, the abuse and the mockery of the very priests and scholars who should have proclaimed and heralded him. They should have worshipped him. And instead they mock him and beat him and spit in his face and accuse him of blasphemy and plot his death. This scene is a scene of great sorrow for Jesus. Now the night holds three more trials that are interwoven with these these trials amongst the religious leaders. Those other three trials are secular trials before the Roman authorities. That's the third scene of suffering we want to look in on on this way from Gethsemane to Golgotha. His first secular trial is with a man named Pontius Pilate. You've heard the name, I'm sure. He was the Roman prefect or the governor who ruled over the province of Judea. And John records his partnership with the religious leaders this way that just underscores the hypocrisy of those leaders. In John 18, um, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters. It was early morning by now. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. 
Pilate, once Jesus is delivered to him, examines him, and this is his verdict. This is what he finds. Luke tells us that Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And the mention of Galilee triggers something in Pilate's mind. It will lead to the second of these secular trials. This is what he says. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, Herod was the Roman um, overseer of the district of Galilee, um, he sent Jesus over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So again, Herod rules the province of Galilee for Rome. Uh, This is Herod Antipas. Um, This is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. His father was Herod the Great, who had ordered the slaughter of the infants at Bethlehem when Jesus was born, trying to kill Jesus. So of course, this Herod has an intense interest in knowing who this Jesus is. So he questioned Jesus at some length, Herod did, but Jesus made no answer, and the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, and then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now, upon his return to Pilate, this leads to a second examination of Jesus by Pilate. That's the third examination or trial, if you will, by the Roman authorities. And at each of these three trials, the verdict is the same. The first trial we saw, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. And then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them after the third, third examination, and he said, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Jesus is declared innocent by all three of his examinations before Rome, and yet he must face punishment. And so Jesus now endures the sorrow of injustice. As Isaiah predicted, again from Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus suffers the shame and the sorrow of injustice. And in the next scene along this journey, he suffers the humiliation of rejection by the crowds. Again, back in Matthew 27, 
Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor, that's Pilate, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, and when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want to release for you? Do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And the people chose Barabbas over Jesus. According to Mark and Luke both, Barabbas was a robber and a murderer. And Jesus now experiences the shame of having a murderer chosen above him. And Jesus now endures the suffering of humiliation before the crowd. The next scene on the way of suffering, we find Jesus mocked now by the soldiers he's been entrusted to. In Mark's account in Mark 15, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. It says, they were striking his head. It's not a single blow. Some of your Bibles actually render it. They were striking him again and again. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And all of this, the mockery with the soldiers and with the religious leaders, Jesus had predicted with remarkable precision before he ever even entered the city on this last week. Look, look at what Mark says in Mark 10 before Jesus started this last week. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And he said, say, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. They're not there yet. They haven't even entered the city for this last week. And he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And again, this scene is of mockery and abuse. And Jesus suffers it all willingly. 
knowingly. And that leads us to this sixth and final scene we want to look at today. They, they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, about nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. Nine o'clock in the morning. So this journey from Gethsemane to Golgotha, these, these six trials interspaced, took all night long. And now if it's not enough to nail him to the tree, now they mock him there. And, and not just one group, but one after another after another. Matthew tells us about it. He says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. So on this Friday, Good Friday, Jesus suffers the betrayal and abandonment and denial of all of his disciples. He suffers the injustice of six trials before the religious leaders and before Rome. He suffers the rejection and humiliation before the people, the mocking of the soldiers, and the cruelty of the cross. Why would we ever call a day like this Good Friday? And of course, if you've read the rest of the New Testament, you know that especially the Apostle Paul spends a lot of his writings telling us all the good that would come from this Friday and Jesus' cross work. But we also find several clues in our story along the way and in the next few verses that follow. Look what follows the, death, the telling of the death of Jesus in Matthew 27, starting verse 51. Behold... At the death of Jesus, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was son of God. 
So the curtain of the temple at the death of Jesus was torn, top, mysteriously torn, top to bottom. And the temple had two curtains, one on the outer portion and, and one on the inner. Seems likely that with this, this is the inner curtain that's in view here. And that curtain walled off what you may have heard referred to as the Holy of Holies, um, the place where God's presence was manifest, where only the high priest could enter. Um, back in Leviticus, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So when that veil was torn, it symbolizes richly access to God for us all, for all who come, not through the old temple, but through faith in Jesus, who's the new temple, who gives us access to God, who's the new high priest that makes a way for us. We call it Good Friday because when Jesus walked the way of suffering all the way to the cross, he secured for us access to God. Now, a second reason that's embedded in our story today as to why this is such a good, good Friday is found in that story of Barabbas, right? When the people cried out together, away with this man, Jesus, and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Um, see, in... In, in this story, when you first read it, there is a deeply troubling injustice, right? A guilty man goes free and an innocent man is punished. And this upsets all our sensibilities. That's not the way things are supposed to be. This is an injustice. But if we remember Jesus' words that he famously said in John 15, where he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If we remember those words, that if someone voluntarily lays down his life for a guilty friend, that's no longer injustice. That's love. David Mathis writes, here, as Jesus is delivered to death and Barabbas is released to new life, we have the first substitution of the cross. The innocent Jesus is condemned as a sinner while the guilty sinner is released as if innocent. And, and, you, and I think you can see the reflection. Barabbas' story mirrors ours. Both of our freedoms, ours and his, come by Jesus taking our place as our substitute on the cross. That's why Barabbas went free. That's why we go free. Access to God comes through substitution, a great and wondrous act of love. That's why we call it Good Friday, because we have access to God through this great act of loving substitution. 
Look again at those verses, those fascinating verses that follow the crucifixion. Behold, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. Um, At the death of Jesus, the earth shook, rocks are split, tombs are open, and some from among the dead were bodily raised, and they went back into the city two days later after Jesus' resurrection on the third day. And I've, I've, it never is helpful for me particularly to try to precisely distinguish what Jesus' death does and what his resurrection does. They seem to be two separate events of one fabric, and they just are all doing amazing things for us. Um, and here we see how entangled they are truly as Jesus' death brings about the resurrection of the saints, but they don't show up until after his resurrection. And so some of you are wondering, what were all these resurrected people doing for two days? I have no idea. But if I had to guess, I bet there was some kind of crazy worship party going on in the catacombs of Jerusalem for two days before they were released to come into the city. Um, There's a There's a wonderful Easter hymn that puts it well. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. See, it's called Good Friday because we have access to God by Christ becoming our sacrificial substitute and conquering death by his death. And the last thing from our story that I'll point out to you that makes it Good Friday is that it's, it's for all of us. It's for anyone who will believe. In verse 54, this centurion, this Roman soldier and his, his cohort who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake. What took place? They're filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. That's interesting, following Jesus' death, the first confession and proclamation of the good news about who Jesus truly was comes from a band of Roman soldiers. It does not come from the disciples. It definitely does not come from the religious leaders. It comes from a band of, I guess, formerly pagan soldiers, Gentiles, the nations, I love the way Dale Bruner puts it. He says, it pleases Matthew that just as it was Gentile magi who first honored Jesus' birth in Matthew 2, so it is now Gentile militia who first honored Jesus' death. The moment the split veil opened Jewish religion to all, the pagan world started coming to faith. And so we call it Good Friday because it's, it's, for, it's for everyone. It's for everyone anyone who would believe. It's for the world so that every tribe, tongue, and nation now can have access to God by the substitutionary cross work of Jesus Jesus, that conquered sin and death. And we call it Good Friday because on this day, it was demonstrated for us once and for all how wide and how long and how high, how deep is the love of God, 
even for us. Pray with me, and then we'll come to the table and remember the depth of his love for us. Oh, Jesus, what sorrow you endured. And we, we've skipped across it like a rock across a pond. We've just touched on it. And even if we pondered it for a lifetime, I know we would just scratch the surface of what it meant for you to walk this road, this way of suffering and sorrow, the painful way, and become our sin bearer so that we would not have to bear our sins anymore. And so we, we bow before you, and we give you thanks. Thank you, Jesus, Son of God, for bearing the shame of the cross and my sin. Thank you. And we remember you, now as your people, we remember the depth of your love for us as we approach this table. As you approach the table, it may be that the thing that you need more than the table is you need Christ. You need a substitute. You've been bearing your own sin. And this morning, the story says you don't have to bear it anymore. Christ has gone to the cross so that you, like Barabbas, can go free. And so more important than doing the religious thing and coming to the table and partaking of the symbol is that you would embrace the substance behind it, Jesus, the Christ, the very Son of God. And for those of us who've done that, who believe, who follow Jesus' way, we, we remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.